Today our reading comes from Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. A number of months ago, Marty had this issue with her Volvo where it suddenly lost power. And she's calling me and being like, has this ever done this when you're driving? No. And she had the kind of foresight to pull off this major road into a little residential area. And kind of just as she did that, the electronic parking brake went on and everything just died. So she had a friend coming by. This friend stops and looks at a couple things. We, we tried everything we could think of. It's a hybrid, so we're like looking at the hybrid battery. We're trying to jump the, the regular little battery. We're going in the touchscreen menu and going through all these things. Like, how do you reset the parking brake? Just a bunch of different... I, I changed fuses under the hood to see if it was something fuse-related. We called Volvo Roadside Assistance, which is no assistance at all. Um, they're like, oh, we've never heard of that. But anyway, good luck. So finally called a tow truck, got it towed over to Volvo, and a number of days later they said, oh, you're the motherboard of your car. Like the thing that drives the brain of everything is completely fried. And, uh, and I'll insert this, that like I love Swedish en- engineering and all that, but whoever's the genius that put the motherboard like right next to the cup holders so that a couple ounces of fluid that spills on them like does thousands of dollars of damage is not, that's not great engineering, okay? My point of this is the Volvo had one major problem. And we could, we could fix a bunch of other things that may also be a problem that are never going to get the car to run unless you replace, repair, fix that one major problem. Now, coming to your lives, if I asked you to list out all your problems, <laughs> yeah, don't do that. But if you did, some of you could come up with hundreds of problems. And I mean like just relational problems, financial problems, problems with work or being out of work, problems with interpersonal conflict. Um, You could list physical aches and pains and just go on and on listing all your problems. And those things would be real, like they're not made up problems. But it's interesting that as we come to Scripture, Our most basic and serious problem of all, out of all those problems, according to Scripture, is actually our alienation from God. Okay, so in the very first chapters of the story in Genesis, we discovered that we were not only made in God's image, but we were made for relationship with God. We were meant to have intimate fellowship and friendship with God forever But sin enters the picture and breaks that relationship. Sin is like pouring the the water on the motherboard that fries that relationship, that that kills that relationship, and that needs to be fixed. And, And kind of the story of the rest of the Bible is, what is God going to do? 
And what is God going to expect of us, if anything, to repair that relationship? So let me give you this theme. This is kind of what this Psalm 15 is saying, and I'll overview this and then we'll jump right into it. Here's what Psalm 15 is saying. We enter God's holy presence by grace, and we remain there in grateful obedience. We enter by grace, but we remain there in grateful obedience. And I think David shows us one preeminent question, two paradoxical answers that I'm going to give you, and then three practical applications or takeaways for you. Um, Let me just remind you, because it's been a year since we were in the Psalms, we started this last summer, that these are poems, but they're Hebrew poems. And so as you look at them and you think of poetry that you know, they don't rhyme. There's not a particular meter to them the way you would have like a sonnet or something. But the main feature of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. And so often you get like synonymous parallelism where two lines are saying the same thing just slightly different ways. Or antithetical parallelism where they're saying opposite things in two straight lines. And that's what we see in the beginning here with the first sentence. And this is the preeminent question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Okay, so let's unpack that. Israel had millions of hills. But there was one that was thought of as like the holy hill, which was Mount Moriah, which is where the temple has been in Jerusalem for thousands of years. That's Mount Moriah. They called it the holy hill, which is a word that could literally mean like the sanctuary, the hill of the sanctuary, or the hill that's set apart for the worship of God. But interestingly enough, David writes this before there's a tabernacle. You may know from scripture, it's actually David's son, Solomon, who is the one that builds the temple. And before that, there was a tabernacle, which was a movable tent. It's what Israel, as they come out of bondage in Egypt and they're traipsing across the desert, they have this tent that they can set up and tear down and move and set up again. And it's often called, 140 times in scripture, it's called the tent of meeting. Because this is where, of all places, as God says, I will put my presence in the midst of my covenant people, and I will meet with them in this tent, okay? So as David asked this question, it's really a question about being in the presence of a holy God. It's not about going to Jerusalem. It's not about going to the tabernacle per se, but his point is who can not only enter God's presence, but notice his language, it's it's who can reside, who can abide in God's presence. And I would, I would put it in the modern vernacular, just something like this. Who is qualified to go to heaven and live with God forever? Who is qualified? Who can do that? Okay. And I, I ask it that way. And I think there's a tremendous relevance for our culture today, because it's, it's still a question of just like, who gets to go to heaven? Who doesn't go to heaven? And many people have this belief of just like, well, if there is a heaven, then probably everyone gets to go there just automatically. Or various religions have these benchmarks of like, if you behave a certain way or you believe certain things, you get to go to heaven, but other people who behave differently or believe differently do not. And it's an important question. So what does the Bible say? Well, in answer to this one question, let me give you these two, and I call them paradoxical because it's like, how, how are both of these things true? But this is still what Scripture teaches. And the first of these answers is, I'll call it the ethical answer or an ethical answer. Because you notice that, that as David answers his own question now in the six couplets that follow, 
he's not presenting like liturgy or like a ceremonial thing of like, well, you come and you wash your hands, maybe you wear certain clothes, but he's talking about the morals or the ethics of anyone's life. And that's why I call it an ethical answer. And I'll be candid with you. I think David sounds pretty moralistic on the surface. It's like, who can go to heaven and live with God forever? And he's like, well, do this and do this and do this and don't do this and don't do this and do this and you're good. And that's what it sounds like on the surface. And I had to remind myself of a key to kind of preserve this from being this moralistic list of like, if you do these things and don't do these other things, you get to go to heaven because that's not what he's saying. Um, Let me just remind you of the context of any psalm that David writes. He's writing for the worship of God's covenant people. So as David or Asaph or some of these other psalmists write any psalm, they are assuming it's being given to the covenant people of God to encourage or to facilitate their worship of God. So he's assuming you already believe in and it's Yahweh, the God of the covenant people. His name is Yahweh as he reveals himself. And he's like, you, you, you love Yahweh, you trust Yahweh, and here is instruction for your worship. That's important to remember. Notice David's also writing about coming to the tabernacle, which is where the covenant people would come with a sacrifice that they would give to the priests, that the priests would offer this as a covering or an atonement for their sin. So as he writes this, he's also assuming, okay, you're coming to this place where God's presence dwells, and you're coming with a sacrifice because you understand it takes grace. It takes an innocent creature essentially giving its life for you in order for God to cover or to atone for your sin. So when we come back to these standards, it's not this moralistic of like, if you do these things, you get to go to heaven. If you don't, if you fail at any point, you don't go to heaven. You don't see God's presence. He's more like saying, I'm presupposing the necessity of loving God, believing God, confessing your sin, receiving his forgiveness, Now, here's a short list, and certainly not an exhaustive one, of just these are the kinds of things that are true of those who do believe in God and love God. So this is an oversimplification, but let me illustrate. Let's say you are interested in someone as a single person who is way out of your league, whatever that means, okay? I actually don't love that terminology, but but people know in the vernacular, like, this person's way out of my league, but you're interested. And that person asks you on a date. And then another date, and then another date. And then as you talk, there's a growing affection, and you love each other. And this person asks you to marry them. And you get engaged, and you get married. And on your honeymoon, you bring your ex. Essentially, David's saying, as you come, saying, I love God, I trust God, Don't bring your ex into this covenant worship of God. Don't bring these things that are are typical, that are illustrative of this old person that you were before God's grace redeemed you, chose you, loved you, and transformed you. Just come to God and become like him. Okay, so I want to take a few moments to look at these six couplets, and I'm going to put them like this, kind of like, I'm going to use the terminology of like, these are tests, six different tests of like, as I come to God, have I left these former 
ways of thinking and these former behaviors behind? And have I embraced a new way of just being present with God who is holy and gracious and just and righteous and he loves me and I love him? So that's kind of the test, okay? Number one, we start with this general, I call it just a general character test. Verse two says he, and you could, it's he or she, okay? Like as you talk in these ancient Semitic languages, it is, he is just the generic he. So you, if you're a woman here this morning, just say like she, okay? But he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And we hear the word blamelessly and we think sinless perfection. And that's fair because even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, Matthew 5 verse 48 says, you therefore must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. So he sets this benchmark of like, don't just excuse your sin. You need to be perfect like God is perfect. And, and you can be that way. I don't think in fairness that's what it means here. I think blameless here means more like what it means in other poetic literature. So like Job 1, and we talked about this recently when we were talking about suffering, but Job 1 starts out before all this pain enters Job's life and the trials and the suffering, it says, Job was a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And Job is not saying like he was sinlessly perfect. It's saying he was above reproach. It was saying he was someone who turned away from wrongdoing and embraced God and feared God. The next line kind of helps us with that because it's saying the same thing a different way. And it says, and one who does what is right. And that right there is the word righteous, which simply means a life that is conformed to the standard of God's word. Righteousness is, the, I'm not coming up with my own rules. I'm not dismissing part of scripture and saying, I don't believe that. I'm not worried about that. It's just simply saying God's standard in his word is the measuring stick and my life measures up with what God requires. And note that the person is doing right, not just like thinking or uh, believing right things. And I want you to see this first couplet, verse 2, as like these are, these are two sides of one coin. One is like it's a person who doesn't do what is wrong and practices what is right. Or as we just said a few moments ago in the confession of sin, God, I know that I've sinned against you both in what I have what? Both in what I've done and in what I've left undone. And this first general character test is, as we're growing in Christ, we're stopping those things that we ought not do, and we are practicing the righteousness that we ought to do. You know, both, both sins of omission, what we leave out, and sins of commission, what we do. He's saying this is, this is a person who is embracing God's law as the ultimate standard, both for what they do and don't do, okay? So that's kind of the general character test blamelessness, doing what is right. Now there's secondly a truth test starting in the second half of verse two. Notice this, and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue. Uh, I think this and speaks truth in his heart is important because you ever, you ever talk to a liar or you ever hear, overhear a liar and it dawns on you like they've told so many lies and they've told some of the same lies so many times. I think they actually believe their own lies. And the psalmist's point is that's because deceitful words come from a deceitful heart. If you're rehearsing untruth in here, in your soul, in your inner person, 
then of course, what is the overflow of a deceived heart? It's deceived words and deceitful words. Um, on the contrary, if you're rehearsing honesty, truth, that which corresponds to reality, then your words will be that which correspond to reality. Now, slander is just a specific form of lying. I think you all know what it is. It's basically a lie that harms the reputation of another person. So this could be like gossip, it could be like innuendo, where you didn't really lie about them, but you'd kind of drop something in that undermines the reputation of another person. Slander could happen in the form of a half-truth, where you are intentionally deceiving about the character of another person because you don't tell the full story that you know. I think slander could even be, maybe not by the literal definition, but in, in a figurative sense, it can expand even to silence when you know the truth about someone and you refuse to speak up because you want to be accepted or you want to manipulate a situation, so you just stay quiet and let other people run down someone's reputation. And the application of this kind of truth test is, are you a trustworthy person who only speaks truth always? Or do you ever just twist the truth a little bit, just, just to manipulate outcomes a little bit so it's a little bit better for you? And maybe you don't even intend to do harm to someone else, but you do because you're, you're manipulating things so that you come out looking better or on top. That's this truth test. Thirdly, you have what I call a harm test. Starting in the second half of verse 3, it says, And he does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And the word evil here is, it's wrongdoing, but it's a specific kind of wrongdoing or a specific category. It's the kind of wrongdoing that causes someone else harm or trouble or distress. That's the, the basic idea of this root word evil is I'm doing someone else harm. But what does it mean to take up a reproach against someone? We don't use that language often today. The way we may say it is you ever feel contempt in your heart toward another person? Like they've, they've maybe done one too many things or one too many really painful things to you. And you're just like, I hate them. I despise them in my heart. And you feel that kind of contempt. And uh, the idea of taking up a reproach goes one step further because, because of that hatred, because of that contempt, you actually try to shame or humiliate them. Or you at least rejoice when they are shamed or humiliated. Okay? So I don't know who else can relate to that, but sometimes there's this feeling in your heart of like, this person has hurt me deeply, I would love to see her fail. I would love to see her just fall, get exposed. And I don't mean in a righteous way. I mean, I would gloat over damage being done to them. I see this, this kind of reproach also happen from a place of envy, just like I wish I had either like a possession, a physical thing, or a relationship, or a promotion like someone else has, and you start to take up this thing of like, I'm starting to despise this person because they have something that I don't have and I wish I did. That's the harm test. He's just saying that the righteous person who's coming and living in the presence of God doesn't harm his neighbor and doesn't bear this ill will in their spirit of wishing for the humiliation of another. Then fourthly, we have in verse 4 what I call a values test. Values. Okay? It says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. 
And what, what David's saying is what you value and who you value says a lot about your beliefs and priorities. And this is interesting. A, a vile person, that root word there is, is literally, the, the root word is rejection. We think of vile maybe as like heinous and like the really evil stuff. Like a mass murder is vile, and, and they are. But the root idea is a vile person is someone who's rejected. Rejected God's law, rejected God's word. And, and there's also a nuance of disdain. So a vile person, according to David, according to Scripture, is like, I've rejected your law. I have disdain for your law. I despise your law. Don't care about you, God. I just, I, like, I'm doing my own thing. And interestingly enough, the reaction word here, which is the word despised, is like, you're supposed to despise a vile person. And it, despise actually means something very similar to the word vile. It means to think little of or to have disdain for that's fascinating that an attribute of godliness is to think little of people who think little of God. To put it differently, to esteem lightly those who esteem God lightly. And on the other hand, because notice, notice the couplet, notice the parallelism, he says it's also an attribute of godliness to honor those who honor God. Um, we've talked about the word honor before. It's the word kabod, which is often translated like glory or glorify. It's the idea of adding weight to something or someone. And in the big picture, David is simply saying the godly person, the person who lives in the presence of God, is the one who knows not only what to value, but who to value. And it's looking at a culture filled with different kinds of people on this spectrum of completely showing disdain and dishonor for God and people over here that are trying to honor God. And I I think you all know as I bring this into our contemporary cultural moment that, that many of the people who feel disdain and contempt for the law of God, our culture looks at those people and celebrates those people, honors those people, carves out special events to say, that is good, And what the scripture is saying is, that's not good, and it's not good to say it's good. It's good to say good is good. It's good to look at the the values and the attributes and the character traits that God honors and say, even if that is culturally unpopular or like blacklisted, that's the person I'm going to honor because that's the person who honors God. And that's a values test. And I know it's easy in a culture where you feel like, you know, up fishing a couple weeks ago in, in Clear Creek and just like the snow runoff and all the rain we've had, it is just like a torrent and you cast anything in. If you don't hit the exact right spot, it's just, it's just gone. And we can feel like that culturally. It's just like, man, everything is just accelerating and there's so much just rushing in this direction and we're swimming upstream and it's just easier to just go with the flow and honor those the culture honors and what david is saying well, yeah, but there's a values test do you value what and who god values fifthly here there's what i call an integrity test verse four second part who swears to his own hurt and does not change The idea here is you've made an oath, you've made a covenant, or you've made a commitment, and maybe your times change, 
and you fall on something hard and you're like, well, it's easy to keep a promise when everything's aligned to help you keep that promise. It's easy to, to pay my debt and my commitment when everything aligns to paying that debt and commitment. It's easy to put God first when he's blessing me so much that giving something doesn't feel like a sacrifice. But, but the principle here is your integrity is, is you're the same whether it's easy for you to keep your commitment or whether it feels impossible to keep your commitment. You know, it's like buying a car on credit and you're making a payment and because, you're, because you feel so poor, money's so tight, you're like, I'm not gonna add any of the elective coverage for like comprehensive and then your car gets stolen and you're like, well, I'm not gonna pay off that now because I didn't even have that vehicle. You know, and what he's saying is a person of integrity is like, look, I swore to my own hurt. I'm not going to make other people pay for my promises and commitments. I'll pay for my promises and commitments. That's a life of integrity. And then finally, verse five and number six, this is what I call a money test. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And uh, that's an interesting because I'd actually point out that Scripture does not prohibit making interest. In fact, in, even in the Jewish law at this time, a Jew could charge a Gentile interest on a loan. They just couldn't charge another Jew interest. We, we know that this isn't just a blanket statement because in the New Testament, you know, the parable of the talents where uh, Jesus is telling the story and he's like, you know, the master gives like 10 and 5 and 2 or 10, 5, and 1 talents to different servants and says, like, go and do something this, with this until I return. Well, what does he rebuke the guy with the 1? He says, like, you didn't even put it in the bank where you could have given me my money back with interest. He expected him to get interest. So what is forbidden here is what in, in contemporary culture would be called usury. It's basically predatory lending. And this is what the law of God did forbid. It's like when a brother comes to you in desperate need, this is not your time to be like, ooh, this is a chance for me to make even more because I'll give you a loan because you desperately need it, but you got to repay me with interest. I mean, this is like the predatory lending of like a modern payday loan place where it's like, well, you're waiting on that first paycheck, but you want to get your apartment, so you sign over your paycheck, and we'll give you like pennies on the dollar, great deal for both of us, and it's not. It's taking advantage of some, someone that has a desperate need, and that's what God is forbidding here. Don't take advantage of someone with a significant need. Um, the general principle here is some people use people to make much of money. Some people use money to make much of people. Which do you think is the righteous way? It's taking the stewardship of the gift of money, financial blessing that God has given you, and making much of other image bearers, not leveraging people, manipulating people, so that you have more prosperity. Then a bribe, which is the, the parallel of this, I think that's easy enough to understand. A bribe is when you do injustice in exchange for money or some kind of advantage. And the, the parallel between these two is basically the sin of manipulating and harming other people for financial gain, okay? And he's just saying, like, the righteous person doesn't do that. Okay, so I'll summarize these. Like, let's just run through those six tests again in reverse order. So you got the money test, an integrity test, a values test, a harm test, a truth test, and that general character test of blamelessness, okay? So how'd you do? 
like six for six, 12 for 12, if you break up the half cowputs into 12 things, you know, and, and I, like, as I look at these, I'm like, well, like, how good is good enough, David? I mean, like, if I'm, if I'm five out of six, or I'm just a little over 50% in the good, or if you, you know, put it on, like, a modern grading scale of letters, it's like, if I get an A, is that good enough? Or an A minus, is that cool? And here I'm coming full circle to this paradoxical answer, because the ethical answer is, remember the question, who is qualified to spend eternity in the presence of a holy God? And the ethical answer is nobody. Nobody. And it's not like God is just like angry and arbitrary and he's like, if you sin at all, it's just over because that's just the way I am. It's more like if you spill water on a motherboard, by nature of a motherboard and water, you will sever that relationship where it, where it works. And you need a replacement. It's not God being arbitrary. It's like it's the nature of holiness and the nature of sin that we have to first acknowledge, God, if it's just about me keeping these six things, and that's six out of 613 in the Bible. Like, who, who can stand before you, let alone dwell in your presence? And the answer is nobody. And And Tyler, as he was looking at Psalm 14, just the, you can look probably on the same page, says this, Psalm 14, verse 3, that we looked at last week, there is none who does good, not even one. And the point is clear, if we have to qualify ourselves to live in the presence of a holy God, none of us can enter by our own merits, let alone stay there. And, and if you're like, so that's it, basically the, the, the whole point of the psalm is, is that anticlimactic. Like, who can come in the presence of God? And it's like, nobody, the end. No. No, because we have to remember the psalm's place in all of Scripture, that it is part of this bigger story. And what the psalms are doing over and over again are, are preparing us for and pointing us to Jesus Christ personally Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you with this. Many of you know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you know Romans 3.24, the very next verse? Okay, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and are justified, that is declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on in verse 28 and says, For we hold that one is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. So yes, there's this ethical test of like, can you do all these things? And can you avoid all these other things that dishonor God? And the answer, if you're like me, is is no. I can't. So then you have the, the paradoxical gospel answer which is, no, we don't qualify ourselves, but, that's bad news, but the good news is everyone who repents and believes in Jesus is qualified by his obedience. Because when I go back to the ethical answer, I said no one's qualified, but not that I lied, I just didn't finish the sentence, okay? No one is qualified except Jesus. Because actually when Jesus came to this earth as a human being, he perfectly kept the law. 
you could look at those six things. And I did it this week where for, for another project the elders are working on around discipleship, I was reading through the Gospels, just reading, reading, reading through the Gospels, just rapidly reading through the Gospels. And I'm like, man, these six things show up in Jesus' life. His blameless character, the, the truth, the, the money thing, how he viewed money, how he talked about money, all these things. He was the righteous one that the psalm is talking about. And if we're wanting to spend eternity with God in heaven, the right answer is not, I'm not that bad. And the right answer is not, I sure hope I get there. I hope I've done enough good. The, the answer is just like, oh, I'm guilty of some of those things in that psalm. But I see that Jesus says, I invite you to come. I invite you to trust that I've done it for you. So, so now we're friends. We're not enemies. We're family. Come and abide. And it's interesting that Jesus uses that same terminology, not just like plug into the branch, unplug, but he's like, come and abide. Come be connected to me forever. Okay, so three practical applications here in closing. Um, number one, just confess your sin that disqualifies you. Confess is just the basic idea of admit, acknowledge, literally say the same thing as God about your sin. Okay, now these other two applications are going to be important, but do you, do you take time like we do in the service every week? And again, this isn't just a liturgical thing like, I don't know, Richard, please like stick it in there again. Um, it's like, no, because we know throughout the week and day by day, we are falling down. We are failing. We're coming short. We're, we're doing things that we shouldn't do, and we're failing to do some of the good for our neighbor that we could do, should do. And so the invitation of Jesus is just acknowledge that. You know, what our culture does is the exact opposite. What I see us doing as a culture is, is one, we, we cover sin, we hide sin, and that is our natural instinct. Like, the first sin ever, the first man and woman, like, what do they do? Like, in the presence of a holy God, and they're like, okay, we sin, we feel the brokenness, they sense the shame, and they're like, mm, fig leaves. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide. I'm going to duck in the bushes, and God won't see, and we won't see each other in a way that's shameful. And we're, we're still doing the same thing, thankfully not with fig leaves, but we figure out ways of trying to hide, cover up, make it look better than it actually is. And though culture is doing that, that is not what someone who believes in Jesus is called to do. You don't cover your sin. You don't hide it. You also don't do what culture does in simply redefining it. And this is a, a huge cultural trend of turning away from, um, to go back to the word vile and the idea of just having disdain for the word of God and saying, well, well I say that's not a sin. And I think we do two things with that of saying that's not a sin. One, our culture just says, that's not a sin. That's good. That is to be celebrated. And two, we say that's not a sin. It's like, it's like a sickness. And we have this whole sickness model for everything. And by the way, as a, like, as a psychologist, as a counselor, I realize there are many sicknesses. That is a reality, okay? But everything can't be lumped into, it's just all some kind of sickness. Um, because what you're saying then is the core of my identity is that I, I, I'm just a sick person. And God's like, that is not the core of your identity. You're, like, you're a sinner. You're broken. But there is forgiveness for your sin. 
You can be healed from your sin, released from your sin. And so I don't, I don't want to accept a model where it's just like, let's, let's take things that the Bible says are sin, practices that the Bible calls are as sin, and just say, well, I disagree, and I'm the final arbiter of truth, and so therefore it's not sin. So there you go. Because we're not the final arbiter of sin. God is. And God is judge, and he's just, and he's fair, and he's gracious. So he's just saying, just agree with me over and over again. As a daily practice, agree with me about the areas where you're struggling. And then the, the only way we can do that is the next application, which is, and trust the one who qualifies you. See, it's hard to confess without trust. I, I, I find this in my own relationship with my wife and different ones of you, that when I'm struggling with something, and actually she probably knows, not before I know, but before any of the rest of you know, but as there, as there is a relational commitment of like, yes, you're messed up, and I love you, you know, does that make me more, more or less likely to share other areas where I'm struggling? It makes me more likely, because it's like, I, I know you're not going anywhere, and I'm not going anywhere if you're struggling, and friends in the church that we've done a lot of life together, and it's like, I know I could talk to you when I'm down and I'm discouraged or depressed or just frustrated or angry at God and doing some of that lament stuff we talked about and just saying, I think here's where I'm at. And if we trust the one who qualifies us and say, it's not about my performance, it's about his performance for me. So now I'm free to stop hiding and covering up. And by the way, if you don't trust the one who qualifies you, you, you will forever be tragically self-deceived, and therefore you will deceive other people. If I think the sum total of my value and how you should honor me is my personal performance, then I'm constantly adjusting the record. I'm making it look like I did better and more than I actually did. And the negative things, I'm like, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. That was this person, or that, was, that wasn't me. That didn't actually happen. And you become a very self-deceived person that then deceives other people because you're, you're constantly adjusting the record. But what, what if you trust the one who qualifies you and you're like, friends, I am broken. I am a sinner. I still continue to sin and to fall down. And as I was looking at this list, um, I mean, I can, I can be specific. This, this whole, like, take up a reproach against a few people close to me, and it's easy for me to self-justify and be like, well, if you knew what they did to me, if you knew how they lied about me, you would understand why I feel tremendous contempt and would love to see them fail. And some of you would be like, yeah, I do know what they say, said, and I know what they did, and I'm kind of there with you. But God's like, no, you, you, you can't kind of be there with them. Like, <laughs> the, the taking up a reproach and the feeling of contempt is wrong. And I have to confess that is wrong. But I have to trust the one who qualifies me instead of pretending like I have it all together. Okay? If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to hear that, that Christians, like church people, we do not think we are necessarily better than, more moral than, a lot of other people. Maybe you get that impression in your interaction with believers, but it's not like, oh, we're the good people doing all the good things. It's, it's no, we're the people who also stumble and fall down, and we want to please God, but often we don't. And so we confess our sin, 
that disqualifies us, and we trust the one who qualifies us. And what is a Christian at the end of the day? It's a broken person like you who keeps trusting Jesus over and over again with even the bad parts of our lives, with especially the bad parts of our lives. So as you approach God, and I mean, I mean, you're present with God if you're a believer, but I mean, as you're thinking about this in prayer, in worship, in, in meditation, in the different ways that you think about coming to God, you come not thinking like, I'm here because I passed all the tests. There's actually a discipline to think like, I'm here because you passed all the tests for me. That's why I'm here. So confess what disqualifies you, trust in the one who qualifies you, and then finally practice the qualifications in gratitude. Um, like Tim Keller says this so well, like Christians are not people who think I obey, therefore I'm accepted. We're people who think I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Like God's grace has come first and it's foremost. I've been accepted into his family. He's like, come to me and you can worship me and you can enjoy me and you can have my entire inheritance at your disposal forever as you treasure me forever. But, but how did we get there? Not because we passed all the tests, but because he did. But because we're accepted, we want to obey. So I'm, I'm going back to this marriage illustration of like, you know, you married up. And you're like, wow, you really love me. And I've seen that after years of marriage and I really love you. So are you like, okay, sweet. Now that I got this person locked down, I know that this and this and this and this really dishonor her, but she's locked down. So I'm gonna do those things. You're like, of course not. And some of you that are like engaged or like newly married, you, you just can't imagine that like, why would I want to deliberately dishonor someone who has given me this unconditional, like for, I'll love you forever no matter all the ups and downs we go through. No, you're like, I have a desire to honor that person. I want to honor that person. Am I doing this because I have to, to earn their favor, to earn their love? No, I already have their favor and love, but I want to do this because it shows my love. It expresses my love. It completes my love. And that's this final one, that if you, if you really hate your sin and love God's kindness, you can't embrace this modern American Christian antinomianism. What I'm talking about is this Christian attitude of like, because I'm saved by grace, I can still sin. And, and Paul already answered that. He's like, God forbid that we intentionally sin so that grace may abound, and it would but that is not the perspective of someone who really understands your sin and the kindness of God. He's like, that attitude is gratitude. It is, thank you, God. What an honor, what a joy, what a privilege to be in your presence. Now, help me to live in a way that's consistent with that presence. So again, this theme, I think what, what David is saying is we enter God's holy presence by grace. He invites us to come. He enables us to come. But then we remain there in grateful obedience. 